It's Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk with B.J. Today, our guest is Michelle LeClaire. It's going to be a little different law talk than some other ones, and you may even say to me, B.J., how does this connect to law? But I assure you, listen to this whole story, and then I think you're going to want to buy her book because Michelle has a book that has just been released on her journey from being a Scientologist at 18 and her leaving the church for the love of her life. So welcome, Michelle. Thank you, BJ. I'm happy to be here. So let's, you know, let's go back to Michelle, 18 years old, because that's where the book begins. And tell us, you know, how did you become part of Scientology? So my mother and I moved from Oklahoma when I was 16. And my mom got recruited uh, by a management company to consult called Sterling Management. And Sterling Management happened to be one of the largest recruiters to the church Scientology. And she had absolutely no idea. Uh, We didn't know who L. Ron Hubbard was. We didn't know who Scientology was. It just was a good job for her. Yeah. I mean, she was so happy to get this consulting job. And... um, So I started working there during the summer, you know, filing and helping out. And, you know, my mom started getting further and further involved in courses, you know, how to better your business, how to be a better salesperson. And were those courses through Sterling Management or did it already then appear that this was L. Ron Hubbard's teachings at that point? So they were through Sterling and Sterling made it clear that these were L. Ron Hubbard teachings, but that they were secular. And they told her that it had nothing to do with the church. And she said, okay, well, I don't know what church you're talking about. I'm not interested in religion, but okay, I'm happy to, you know, take some course. And my stepfather at the time told her, Terry, this is a cult. And she's she's like, this isn't a cult. This is a big working company. And it seemed like to her at that point, because she brought you in to come work at this company at 18. Well, so I was working there during the summer. And then I had been accepted to the American University of Paris. I'd been accepted to many universities, but that was one that I had chosen. I wanted to go into international law. And um, I had always kind of seen my law career ahead of me. So the summer before I was supposed to leave, My mom said, well, why don't you come and work here? And I think one thing I realized with this book is when I look back now, I knew I had no way to get to Paris. You know, my mother wasn't really helping me. She didn't have the money to do it. My father didn't know anything about it. I mean, what was I going to do? Jump on an airplane and show up in Paris and say, I'm here? I think it was my own fear that allowed me to say, when they offered me a higher position, okay, I'll work here for another year. And that set the course of more and more involvement 
and taking more courses for yourself as well, not just your mom. I did. You know, I jumped in. I, I have always been a sponge with anything that I could learn. And so I decided that if there were courses available, I was going to do them all. And so I would go on the weekends and I would stay, you know, after work and I would do these courses. But really the tr turning point for me was um, I got into a major car accident on excuse me, on my um, on my way to work. And it was a very spiritual moment for me. And um, I should have died. You know, I went underneath two semi-trucks. And mm, mm, mm. the only place that there was not, you know, a wheel mark was right where I was sitting. And um, I had this overwhelming feeling of protection and warmth. And I knew I was going to make it. And so while I was at the hospital, um, my mom walked in the hospital room with the Scientology minister. And that that was really my full, you know, jumping in. So it makes sense. I mean, you're young, you know, you go through a life altering or or you see your life run in front of you when something like that happens at serious at a young age. And then here is someone offering you an explanation and a hope for the future based on some teachings, religious, or that felt to you like religious spiritual teachings that resonated right, at the time. Right, So as you're going through, at what point, because you, you stay involved, do you realize that, or do you, how long do you stay where you say, you know, this is really working for me. I feel I'm, I'm, I'm really involved or, or did early on the, a tiny voice go off and saying, I'm not sure about this, but my mother's involved and the people I work with are involved and I'm doing well at work. H how did that go for you? Sadly, I don't think a voice went off soon enough. I think when you're young and naive, and you know nothing about, especially the way that cults work. You know, they cater to that ego side that is um, usually pretty big when you're young. You want acceptance. You want to be important. And that's what they cater to. And so I loved it. I loved, I loved the attention. And um, I was all in. Took as many courses as I could. Went into as much auditing as I could. Auditing, let's explain what auditing is. So auditing is when you sit across from somebody and there is what's called an e-meter. It's an um, electrical meter that is attached to what almost looks like soup cans. And it supposedly registers thought. So Scientology's belief is that, you know, under the conscious and the subconscious, there is pain and regret and uh, things that you don't consciously know. And this meter, with the right questions directed at you, will pick that up. Here's the problem with auditing. Number one, in my opinion, it's hypnotism. You have a little bit of an electrical charge going through your body for hours. And so everything that I've read from very well-known psychiatrists say that it creates an opiate-like state. So all of a sudden you start feeling amazing. And if you want to talk about things that are bothering you, that auditor, that person that's supposedly listening to you, redirects you to where they want you to go. You actually don't get to talk about the things that are truly bothering you. 
And so, so it's a guy. So although it seems like it's guided mm-hmm. in a certain way. I mean, it, when you're sitting there, I, I'm assuming you feel like you're just really pouring everything out and and being connected. And yet, there's a guiding in the conversation. By, there is like they'll you know they'll ask you um, give me a present time problem. And so you mentioned something, and they'll go, no, that didn't read. You know, give me another present time problem, and you'll bring up something, right? It may not be really what you want to go into. And they'll dive really deep into that. The problem with auditing is this. They direct you to things that are painful. And then once they direct you to the things that are painful, they then direct you to find out how you're responsible for them. So if a woman is raped, they're going to get you to the point where you say, I made that happen. I'm responsible for that. And if there is a child that's molested, what did they do to pull that in? And it becomes, you know, this um, brainwashing that anything bad that happens to you in your life, that you caused it. And they take you so far down that you feel so horrible that then they lift you back up and you feel that, okay, now that I took responsibility for that and you put no blame on the perpetrator, then you somehow, they make you believe that that is empowering. And there could be many different decisions on this, right? And and I'm going to pause you for one second Mm -hmm. because as you are saying this, whether you realize it or not, I'm looking at your eyes and we're on a podcast and, and they're welling up. (laughs) Um, it's and it it, I'm sorry I'm I'm sorry that anybody has to go through things you know everybody in childhood or when they're young and they're vulnerable go through things but I'm sitting here watching you how you still have a reaction to that long ago um, being audited I think I think what it is is it saddens me more than any sort of anger, right? Okay. You know, as a as a woman who went through very painful things, I wasn't allowed to get away from them. I was only allowed to say that I was responsible for them when I was not. And so living this beautiful life that I live now, I feel this sense of responsibility of making sure that this cult is exposed because the practices that they do are the exact opposite of what you should be doing to better somebody or to give them back their power or to make them feel better about themselves. You know, you're trapped. You're totally trapped in a certain way of thinking. So I'm going to move you on as you as you get older because you you know you you're working here and then your career starts to change and you're allowed you're you're involved in a lot of things mm-hmm. and I want to compare that trajectory to your mother's that you talk mm-hmm. about in the book where your mother is part of what's called the Sea Org. So can you kind of lay out the different paths that you are on within the framework of of Scientology? Sure, I think we all find a way of coping. So. My way of coping through the pain that I was going through was to work hard. And um, luckily, I'd always had it in me that I wanted to be the best at anything that I did. So I fell into the insurance world at you know a very young age. 
I loved it because I was helping people. I started out working with teachers and nurses um, to help create a retirement program, and I was great at it. And so after many years of um, education in, in that industry, I ended up starting my own company in 2006. So you worked for some other agencies and, and learned the ropes and then opened your own. I did. And, um, you know, then I eventually built one of the largest uh, women-owned insurance agencies in the nation. Simultaneous, my mom was, you know, on her path. And my mother felt that Scientology was her path. And so she wanted to become the best that she could. So she ended up giving her life to the Church of Scientology. She ended up signing a billion-year contract. Be with a billion years. Yes, yes. Because yes. <laughs> we're here for a billion years. Like They believe that we are here many lifetimes. And, um, you know... Um, and that if you commit yourself as a being, you will always find your way back. And so she signed this contract. And she ended up working her way up and eventually became one of the top um, you know, people in the marketing department from the Church of Scientology in their international division. I was very proud of her. She was proud of me. I was proud of her. And neither one of us told each other the pain that we were going through because you just didn't do that as Scientologists. And it appeared from all outward circumstances, and for you, you were having a good career and financially successful and owning your own business. You know, that those are all things that to an outsider would say, oh, you are independent, you are strong, I am woman, hear me roar, you know, get Helen Ready going, and that would have, what it would sounds like you appeared to be at that point. Yeah, I mean, first of all, Helen Reddy's song, I Am Woman, is like my all-time favorite. <laughs> I did not know that. Okay. That so, um, you know, my mom and I used to listen to that all the time. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, the church is all about PR. So they believe that you have to be the best, you know, outward picture that you can. You know, you have to look good. You have to have a successful career. You got to make a lot of money. And you got to show a successful marriage. And that's the perfect picture so that you can say, I'm a Scientologist. Do I look brainwashed? No. The problem is, is that you are in a box and every single thing you do is dictated to you by the works of L. Ron Hubbard. How to raise a child, how to have a marriage, how to run a business, how to communicate to somebody. Um, you are taught everything. And so what you don't realize is that your box is extremely small compared to the rest of the world. And that ties in next to your choice of, of a marriage partner. Right. Can you share a little bit about so that? So I tried to come out gay at 19. You know, I didn't know what gay was. I mean, you know, all I knew is that I was attracted to women. I kind of thought all women were attracted to women. <laughs> you know, that if you were really close with your girlfriends, you know, those are the people you were attracted to. I quickly found out that the church did not think that. <laughs> and I had to go through a series of steps and making up damage for having any sort of relationship with a woman. And I had to make a choice to live in the heterosexual world. And I think, you know, there was a little part of me that, kind of died and had to kind of get covered up because I was scared to death at the thought of being with a man. And that was was correct from my experience. So, But you were encouraged? I was encouraged. I ended up getting married at 21. 
Um, I ended up getting married to a man who became very abusive over time and started using the fact that he knew I was gay against me. And um, there were many years of things starting out with verbal arguments and things thrown at me and water and boiling water or ice cold water. And then it got worse, you know, and it was a horrible experience. And then I would reach out to the church for help. I tried to divorce five times and they weren't having it. I had now worked myself up to running one of their top um, human rights organizations, which is really just a front group to the church, and they were not going to have me divorcing. Can you divorce in Scientology? You can, but you have to have the International Justice Chief's approval to go through a divorce. And I have seen divorces in the church, but they are kind of far and few between. So very different from the regular journey that someone would go through when you get to that point in your marriage and you call a lawyer and a therapist and sit down and talk about leaving or changing. It, it was it's a, it's a much larger decision. Yeah. Because I mean, you, you're going through marriage counseling, you're meeting with the champ, chaplain of the church, um, and if you do decide to divorce, you're hiring a Scientology attorney. They don't want anything in the public eye, and so they don't want divorces going back and forth, and, and that somebody can look up something in a public record and see that two Scientologists are fighting it out. Everything has to go through the church. And then... Just the minimal state paperwork is ultimately filed later on. That's right. Instead of all having all the depositions and the court documents and the interrogatories and the questions and the requests <laughs> right. for documents and the things that give pitter-patter to the lawyers everywhere, that's, that, that's not part of how you get divorced. No, and I think that really begs a legal question. Right. You know, um, just because you're involved in a certain religion that has a standard is it legal that you can be denied certain rights that you have as um, a United States citizen? It is interesting, although, you know, different religions have different things. I know, obviously, I'm Jewish, and technically you need, I think it's called a get. Somebody's going to correct me if I have this wrong, <laughs> to be able to divorce. That There is something with regard to the religious part of it that there is something of it. But there's certainly not a requirement that you have to have a Jewish lawyer. And I know you can start the jokes now, how many of us there are. Um, <laughs> <That's right>. but, <laughs> but that, you know, you're still going through it in the way, you know, that that you choose and the other person chooses, but you're not precluded from going from the all-out battle process that sometimes happens in the court system. So, mm -hmm. um, And I think the church will tell you. So if they write a statement, they will say in their statement, which I have seen <laughs> with all the media I've been doing, that they do not condone abuse, that they would never stop somebody from getting outside counsel. But all you have to do is read the writings of Elrond Hubbard. His policies are public, and we are taught to follow them to the T. And if there is a policy there that says we are not allowed to sue another individual without IJC approval, suing for divorce falls under that category. Mm -hmm. So at some point you do get your divorce. I finally get my divorce. Um, in 2008 is when I separated. And um, and it was the most wonderful, <laughs> freeing experience. I finally said, I'm not going to give any more money. 
I was donating millions of dollars at this time. And so explain to me that. I mean, and granted, again, whatever religion is, there is, a, you know, a, a hopeful expectation that you will donate because, you know, for me, the synagogue has to exist. Right. For my friends, the church has to exist. I mean, there are a lot of very worthy programming that it's got to, you know, they're not running a business in that sense. You have a right. membership and right. you make donations or a baby is born and you give to the synagogue. Right. So how do you feel that that is different from what most of us know in the Judeo-Christian world with our affiliation with our religion? Well, first of all, it's the pressure that's put on, right? So luckily, getting out of Scientology, going through everything I went through, we now have gone back to my original roots. I was baptized Episcopal. You know, that's where we choose to raise the children now. And, um, you know, I've never been, I've never had somebody show up at my house at two o'clock in the morning trying to help me raise the limits to my credit cards so that I can give more money to the Episcopal Church. <laughs> you know, I have not had that experience either. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And so that's, it's, it's to the absolute extreme. If you don't have enough money, they'll get somebody in the church to loan you that money so that you can, so that you can make donations. I knew very few people inside the church. I mean, like maybe only a handful of people, and that probably was the top actors and most wealthy people in the church that were not in so much debt that they had a very difficult time um, just making ends meet because of all the donations that they had given. Wow. So what leads to you ultimately... Well, there are two parallel stories here, so I want to leave room for both with the <laughs> amount of time we have left, is that your personal connection to someone in the terms of the love department, and then there was a legal intervention in a sense of that I want to talk about as well. Yeah. So I will let you kind of, because they're kind of intertwined, those right. stories. I, I've read the book, obviously, and I, I encourage <laughs> you to, it is, as I told her, I said, I was up till two o'clock in the morning one night reading because I was just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, so if you can kind of guide us there, how those two journeys, the legal and your love. Well, I think that, you know, my children were the first crack that happened in my world in a good way and really helped me make a final decision of pushing the divorce. And then it allowed me to be away from any auditing or courses for a while because I was on bed rest with twins. So... Once I gave birth to the twins, I had not been physically in a church or taking any sort of um, courses or auditing for almost a year. And, you know, my head cleared for a little bit. And so I was called by Shaka Khan and her manager, who's her sister. They were clients of mine. And they wanted me to help fund a music album. And I said, I know nothing about the music business and you know, not interested. Long story short, I ended up agreeing to have breakfast with this person. It happened to be a woman who lived across the street from me. I didn't know she lived across the street from me. And, you know, we did not end up doing any business together, but we ended up becoming best friends. And she was a lesbian. And I just remember this huge crack in my Scientology world of... This is not somebody with, you know, five eyeballs and, you know, horns coming out of her head. She's one of the kindest, sweetest people I've ever met in my life. 
and successful and, you know, helps anyone that she ever sees and is thought of extremely high. And she seems like a good person. So I stopped going into the church a little more. And I started questioning this belief that was surrounding me. And I eventually fell in love with her. And the moment that we fell in love, uh, the church started trailing me. And there was a plant put in my company from somebody from the church. They decided that they were going to start you know, copying all of my files, all of my emails, everything. Because here's how the church thinks. They believe that if you have gone as low as you possibly can to be gay, they look at it as that's just that's just something that happened to you because you must be committing a crime. And therefore, if they can get to the crime that you must be committing, then you won't be gay anymore. And it's almost like they... <laughs> that is a, a making a face that uh, we can't see it on podcasts because it's just bewildering. I mean, and granted, I do criminal defense work and I've been a prosecutor <laughs> and I have not heard that explanation as a reason for, for for committing a criminal offense. Yeah, no, of course, right? You know, gay people are not criminals. <laughs> no. um, you know, so... What ended up happening with me over the long haul of this is that the love set me free, opened up my eyes, and I ended up walking away from the Church of Scientology. The Church of Scientology was not going to allow that to happen. You gave millions. I gave millions of dollars to them. My business partner was Kirstie Alley in, in one business that we had. I was the spokesperson to Tom and Katie's Silent Birth. I was the president to Youth for Human Rights International, which was their front group. So I had a huge connection to the church. And the choice for me was, I'm either going to bring you into the 21st century, and I'm going to become the rainbow flag-waving Scientologist, and I'm going to walk around with my girlfriend, or I'm not. But I'm choosing her and I'm choosing love because I see that that's the right path. And after doing that, you found yourself um, the subject of a criminal case. I did. And arrested. I did. Can you tell us briefly, and obviously you're going to, yeah, legal things are never brief and I could keep you on here for a long time. <laughs> yeah, the story's a bit um, complicated. <laughs> exactly. But but you you were prosecuted. If you can just tell us briefly what you were prosecuted for. And, and then we'll, well go. so I think backing up a little bit okay. is that, um, you know, there's so much that I've learned through this process. So number one is that the church started an initial investigation on me and they started investigating my insurance business. Couldn't find anything wrong there. But inside the reports that I got copies of, it said that um, I was going to be investigated by the state of California and that my clients were going to sue me. I had been making a connection with a handful of my clients. It was a very small portion of my business. But with people that I was connecting to my best, one of my best friends, who had an investment in a film company open to them. And 
I would make that suggestion. I was purely the hired side of it, had no ownership inside of the company. I'd invested my own money. My um, family had invested. What eventually we find out is he was stealing money from me. He made one film. All of the paperwork he provided was full of lies. Well, the church ended up finding this out. They found it out before I did. And um, they decided that they were going to turn it on me. So I I have never said that I believe that the state of California's investigation was started by the Church of Scientology. I believe that the uh, state of California's investigation was tainted by the Church of Scientology. And when I reached out to the state of California, the moment that he came to me and said he was bankrupt— all of a sudden, they had this— He being the person who had the company which you and others had given money to invest for returns That's on the, correct. On, in the film business. The moment that I was kind of waking up to everything, I ended up hiring an outside law firm out of New York that were not Scientologists. And I wanted them to defend my insurance business to the church and prove that what I was doing was fine. And I ended up giving them over all the paperwork on the film company, too. They requested a certified financial audit from this director, director, producer. Within within three months of requesting that um, certified financial audit, he left for Israel and came back a month later and said, there is no money in the company and, and, and it's bankrupt. So the moment that he did that, I went and set up a trust for my clients. These are people that have been clients of mine for 20 years. My family was involved. I was not going to let anybody lose any money on my behalf. So I took the assets that I had at that time, put them inside of a separate entity that I did not have any ownership over, assigned all types of rights, stocks and residual commissions and book rights and media rights and things like that inside of the trust, and went to the state of California and said, we're very worried about this guy. We would like to have a conversation with you. They refused any conversation with me. And what we have found now through all of this, as you said, these are very long. So to sum this up, is that there was a false narrative that was told to them that I was an owner, that this was my idea, that this was created. And the problem is that I never got an opportunity to dispel that. The Department of Corporations uh, sued me. The Department of Insurance came and came after my license and pretty much bankrupted me having to go through that legal side, which I have learned now that, you know, the administrative side is very coordinated in California with the criminal side. So you get, at least in my case and in my well, opinion. And that can be, you know, across the country. In other words, you know, there's a prosecuting agency and then the civil agencies that investigate and, and they do. They share information that happens daily around the country. Right. But I think that there's a very interesting process through mm -hmm. that, which is that they know you're going to exhaust all of your resources on the administrative side. And hopefully you're going to say something when you're defending yourself on the administrative side that you're that's going to incriminate you on criminal, oh, no, no, right? No, no. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's why when I have clients and they call me and say, this is happening, I'm like, do I need you? And I'll say, yes, you do, or, or some lawyer. So, right. you know, anything with the government doing an investigation, you know, you do have to have both eyes open well, and, I think the, and have the, counsel. The greatest advice 
that my attorneys gave to me through this. And I had amazing attorneys in California. The best advice was say nothing. Stop defending yourself. Say nothing. We will get through this process. And, and that's there's a reason why that's in the Constitution, beyond what <laughs> lawyers say. You have the right to remain silent. Um, and it's very important. I know I go through this battle with friends and th- trying to explain things to people about why that's a good idea. But it truly is if, you know, if you're going to have a system of true justice, that, that, that that is allowed. And it's what's remarkable about our system. And I think it's the most difficult thing to do when you know you're innocent. You want to scream at the top of your lungs, right? And you want to provide more information than your attorneys can provide. I was lucky that I was a white woman who had means, who had a huge amount of backup from friends and family and client support. I cannot imagine what women especially of color go through that that do not have that kind of support. And that is my journey right now to bring awareness because my case ended up turning now criminal. 72 um, felony counts were filed against me uh, for securities fraud along with the director. So by the time that it got to the DA's office, I think the DA's office was very aware that the director really was the head of this scheme. He had a $2.7 million bail on him. I was extremely lucky. I don't know if there's anything lucky in the story, (laughs) this part, but I was allowed to be out on my own recognizance, and there was no bail put on me. And their goal was to have me be their main witness. But it was the absolute worst experience imaginable. And, you know, there is supposed to be. We have the right in the United States of a presumption of innocence. And there is nothing, in my opinion, that the legal system allows you to walk in with a presumption of innocence. You are presumed guilty, and it is your job to prove it. So luckily, I did prove it. And after two years of fighting the case, um, I ended up prevailing. We proved to them that I was not an owner of any of these companies. We proved to them all the financials. I went through many audits. I did not profit on any of this. I lost more than anyone. And um, and the case was dismissed in full against me. So that was um, a beautiful blessing. And uh, in, in a huge journey yes. that you shared. Yes. So on every episode, we could keep talking for a long time, y'all. So this is why you've got to read the book, because I'm telling you, that I, I, there were so many things I could ask, but but I'm appreciative of you sharing your story here. And with every episode, I pick a cup of tea that's appropriate for the guest. And I pick the tea. And of course, of all, today we're drinking water because BJ <laughs> left it on the counter. But I do want to point it out because I it was um, a lotus green tea. And the lotus is the giver of lessons mm. and joy and beauty. And I think when I listen to your story, there are a lot of lessons here. I hear what you're saying about not being guilty of criminal offenses, 
But we all make decisions along our path. And if there's any soul that says, I've made every decision right, I made every choice that I should have, I think they're fooling themselves and they will learn their lessons and be condemned to repeat. Absolutely. Um, And I think you're sharing your lessons from your youth to your to being involved in this church and to your realization that joy and love and beauty would set you free, which is part of the book, Perfectly Clear. It's available everywhere. And uh, she's on the cover of People magazine, so (laughs) take a look. Um, But thank you for sharing and joining us on Law Talk with BJ. BJ, thank you for having me and thank you for being there. Thanks. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ Music Theme, written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein Esquire. Bye.